Hey, well, I do want to welcome you, especially if you're new. Um, I don't know if I, I think I forgot to introduce myself, but I'm Mike. I'm one of the pastors, and just glad you're here, and I uh, hope you have a great time with us. But we're going to go into our time of teaching. Uh, inside your program is a message note sheet that will help you follow along, so I encourage you to take that out. It's green and white. And uh, if you're, you're all set, I'm going to kick off this brand new series. You guys ready to go? All right, let's pray. Father, we, uh, we are just so excited to be here. We're so thankful for what you're doing in our church, and we're thankful for this new Christmas season, a time where we, we celebrate when you came into time and space to rescue us as, as a race. And so we pray today as we, we begin this new series, we talk about real Christmas, what it's really like to be there, what's the true message about. We pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what your spirit would say to us, and we would gather around your word, and you would instruct us as our teacher, and we'd be changed as a result. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, today we're kicking off this brand new uh, series. It's called Real Christmas. And so I want to give you a little bit of context. Uh, for those of you who are new, uh, all year we've been in a series, we've been studying the life and teaching of Jesus as uh, seen through the eyes of one of the leaders of the early movement of Jesus, a man by the name of Mark. But one of the things that Mark does, when Mark launches his story in the Gospel of Mark, he starts with the ministry of Jesus when Jesus is about 30 years old. So he doesn't, he doesn't start with any of the birth stories, the events surround the birth of Jesus. And so what I thought we'd do is we're going to take a break from uh, the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to spend four weeks uh, on the kind of the birth of Jesus and the events surrounding the birth. We're going to talk about real Christmas. Then we'll come back and we'll kick off the third and final series of of our our study of the life of Jesus right in the the new year in January. And so uh, we're going to spend four weeks on this series called Real Christmas. Now, when I, when I come to Christmas, uh, I have really mixed emotions because I don't know about you, but I love Christmas. Uh, I love so many things that, that go with it. I love the gifts. Uh, I love, love you know, the trees, the lights, the food, really the food, uh, the family, the friends, uh, all the gatherings, the Christmas movies, Die Hard. Um, yeah, <laughs> didn't Dre do a great job last week? I just uh, love that guy. Uh, anyway, um, but I love all that, but as a Christ follower, a follower of Jesus, I'm often conflicted because uh, as, our, as a culture, and even within the church of Jesus as Christ followers, I think we often miss the real story of Christmas. And I'm not talking just about like keeping Christ in Christmas or, or like saying Merry Christmas instead of saying Happy Holidays. I, I'm talking about uh, what it was really like to be there, that, that first Christmas with the events surrounding and, and what role do these events of Christmas play in the larger story that God is telling of our salvation and who Jesus is and what it means to be a follower of Jesus? And so we're going to spend four weeks kind of rolling up our sleeves, diving back in, taking a look at some of these very familiar stories, but from a new angle to see what, is they, what are they really communicating about uh, what, what God's doing in our lives, what he's, he's doing in the world, and what it means to follow him. And so there in your note sheet, you have a section called Joseph's Story, uh, Shock It Off. And I want to start today with, with the story of Joseph, which again, uh, one of the most famous stories, and yet I think one of the most neglected stories, one of the most neglected characters. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, I'd invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. If you've got your apps, let's go ahead and turn those on. Uh, and as you're doing that, I want to set this up by talking a little bit about Joseph. Um, as is the case with many Bible characters, there's always, you always wish you knew more about their story, but there are several things we know about Joseph that really play a major role in today's, in today's event. And so as we get started, I want to tell you four things we know about Joseph, all right? 
So number one, uh, Joseph was a, as far as we know, a construction worker. So do we have any construction workers in here, like plumbers, uh, lay, uh, framers, any electricians? Go raise them high and be proud. There you go. All right. So he is a construction guy. Uh, we, we know from Mark chapter 6 that Jesus is referred to as a carpenter. Uh, in the Greek, what it actually says is he's a tecton which means a construction worker. It can refer to a stonemason. It can refer to a carpenter, someone who works with wood. But so Jesus is a carpenter, so chances are that he learned this from his father. He apprenticed. That's how things were done in that day. So, so we believe that Joseph, good chance he was a tecton. He was a construction worker. Secondly, the second thing we know about Joseph is that he was young. Uh, we don't really know. Uh, I, when, when you think of the Christmas story, I don't know, uh, when you think of Joseph, how old you picture him. I tend to picture him about 27, maybe 32, someone like that, right? But what we know from ancient Israel is that uh, the young girls were betrothed to be married, uh, usually between the ages of 12 and 14, very young. Uh, and so then the, the young men were betrothed to be married, and they were married uh, when they were maybe a little bit older, so they could uh, you know, have be a little stronger, support the family, maybe 18 to 20. So today, as we think about the story of Joseph, I want you to picture him as being 18, 20. I want you to picture an 18-year-old from your life as the stepfather of God. Um, all right. Uh, so, so as we go through today, don't picture him as older, college grad, uh, you, know, you know, five years into his career. Picture him 18 to 20 uh, a, a construction guy starting off. Third thing we know is that he was poor. Um, later on in this series, the last week of the series, we're going to look at an event that happens about 30 days, 40 days after Jesus is born. Uh, Joseph and Mary taking baby to the uh, temple to dedicate him and for Mary to go through the purification ceremonies after childbirth that the law required. And so according to the law, that when a woman would do this at the 40th day, uh, she was supposed to offer a sacrifice of a lamb, a year-old lamb. Uh, but the law said if you're very poor, uh, you can't afford a lamb, then you, you can substitute two young doves, all right? So that's what they, they, they paid. So we know that Mary and Joseph were poor. The last thing we know about Joseph is that he is what the Bible calls a righteous man, that he is a, a man who's pursuing God. Uh, he's a young man who really wants to please God, and it's going to play a major role in the story today. So uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, let's go to, to chapter 1, verse 18. We're going to pick up the story there. Matthew 1 and verse 18. So this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. So, so Matthew's going to tell us the story. Um, Matthew's going to tell it through Joseph's eyes. Uh, Luke tells the story through Mary's eyes. He's going to have his Joseph perspective. He says that his mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. Now, we need to stop here. Uh, we need to talk about how marriage happened in the ancient world in first century Judaism. In the ancient world, first century Judaism, uh, when a couple is going to be married, the way it would work is that the fathers would get together and they would arrange this marriage. And so uh, the, the two dads, they negotiated out, figure out the bride price, dowry, that kind of thing. And they would enter into an agreement what well, it was called a betrothal. It's so once you're betrothed, you're pledged to be married. So it's kind of like engagement because now you know who you're going to be marrying, so you're, you're sort of who your fiance is going to be. But it's very different in some significant ways. 
And one of the ways it's different is when you get betrothed, it's actually a, le- a legal transaction. That when you're betrothed, you're now technically married. Okay? So you don't live together, you don't sleep together, there's not been a wedding. The betrothal period is usually going to last about a year, but you're now technically married to the extent that uh, if you want to get unbetrothed, you know, like if we break an engagement, no big deal, right? Might be some tears, heartache. If you're too close to the wedding, you lose some deposits, whatever. But, but there's nothing legal about it. But in Israel, when you break a betrothal, it's a legal transaction. You actually have to divorce the person. Uh, Or, for example, if you're betrothed, then let's say the guy dies during that betrothal year, the woman is now considered a widow. So so it's a legal, you're you're technically married. And so, of course, what this means then is if the woman, say, cheats on the man during that year, it's now adultery. And so the law in the Old Testament is very clear. In Deuteronomy 22, it says, if a uh, couple is betrothed, let's say the woman uh, has an affair, uh, that, that he says, well, what's going to happen is you're going to take the guy that she slept with and, and her, and you're going to stone them. It's going to be capital punishment, right? Now, at the time of Jesus, they were no longer practicing capital punishment, partly because Rome was over them. They didn't have that authority. So what they would do is, is, is if someone committed adultery in that year of, uh, of a betrothal, they would divorce the person. It was their way of following God's word and saying, hey, you violated the marriage. You committed adultery. I'm going to divorce you, all right? So that's how it worked. So, so let's, let's step back now. So, so this, let's picture, this is how a marriage works. Two dads get together. They, uh, they, they, uh, they, they pledge their, their kids to one another. They're now betrothed. During the next year, husband's going to be working hard probably, getting the, the house ready, getting everything ready for the wedding. Uh, the, the other family will be planning the wedding out or whatever. And now uh, during that year, uh, at the end of the year, the, 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 the groom is going to gather on the wedding day. He's going to gather with his buddies, and they're going to march through town. They're going to kind of go to a wedding procession, and they're going to go to the home of the bride. And they're going to get the bride, and she's there with her attendants, and now they're all going to come back to the house where they're going to live, which is either the, the groom's home or his father's home where they, they might live. And, uh, and they're going to have a wedding ceremony. And then after the wedding ceremony, for the next week, they're going to have a party. Okay. Isn't that cool? Very cool. Unless you're the father of the bride. But anyway, uh, you're going to have a party, and it's going to be a wedding. Like, like Jesus did the wine, they ran out of wine at Cana, because during the week they ran out of wine. It's a long party. And so uh, they're going to have this wedding. But, but here's what's going to happen. On that very first night, then, it's their wedding night. They get married. They're going to go in together. It's the first time they've slept together. Sexual purity is a huge thing. And so they're going to sleep together. In the morning, they're actually going to bring out the sheets. It's going to be an official thing. They're going to bring out the sheets that has some blood on it from that, their first intercourse that's going to prove that she was a virgin. All right? So this is very big. It's how it all works together. And all this is going to play into the story today. Because what, what's going to happen is that they're in this betrothal year, right? They're in the betrothal year, and Joseph gets word that Mary is pregnant. Now, I want you to picture this. Talk about shock and awe. I mean, his, his world is coming apart. This is a shame-based culture. Uh, some of you come from shame-based culture. In a shame-based culture, the highest value is you don't bring shame on the family. And so, so he's a shame, but he, he loves this woman. He's been looking forward to marry. He's kind of working hard to get things ready. And all of a sudden, he finds out that she's pregnant. 
Now, we don't know how he found out. We don't know if Mary met with him and told him. We don't know if the fathers got together and passed the news. But somehow he, he, he finds out. His world begins to fall apart. He's trying to figure out what to do. He's just shattered. He's just, he's just completely shattered. We, we don't know, we don't know if, if Mary told him the story or not. But if so, he wasn't buying it. Joseph, I've got some good news and some bad news. Can you imagine what's running through his mind? All right, who is this guy? I bet it's Samuel. He's always such a schmuck. That kid over there, I just never liked that kid. You know, he's just like, he's always had eyes for Mary, right? Like, you're, what's going through your mind? Like, I, like, just so confused. Like, I can't imagine Mary, especially we, we know what Mary was like. He's just like, I can't even begin to believe this. And so maybe she tells him the story, maybe she doesn't. But one thing we know is he's not buying it. Hey, Joseph, got some bad news. I'm pregnant. The good news is God's the father. You know, it's just like he's not buying it. And so, so here's what happened. He, he's a righteous man. He's, uh, this guy is a guy who loves God. He's a guy who loves Torah, the law. He wants to obey the law. He knows what the law says. And so he wrestles with this. He struggles with this. He goes before God. He prays about this. His life's falling apart. He's humiliated. His family's humiliated. And as he prays about it, he comes to the decision that the only right thing to do, based on the word of God, based on his prayer, is to divorce her. But one of the things I love about Joseph, we'll talk about this later, he's not only a man who loves God, he's a man who loves people. And in spite of the fact that she's ruined his world, in spite of the fact that the shame has come, in spite of that his, his life will never be the same, that he still has this compassion for, this, for Mary. He, he knows her life is going to be miserable. Maybe she's not even showing yet. Probably not. But once she starts showing and, and, she's a, and he divorces her, her life's going to come unraveled. She's going to be a social reject. She may never get married again. And his heart, in spite of the fact what she's done to him, his heart breaks for her. He's a man of compassion. So he decides to, I'm going to divorce her quietly. Now, in those days, to, to divorce someone, all you have to do, get two witnesses, two male witnesses, say to the wife, I divorce you, you're free to remarry, give her a certificate that says that, and then she, you're, it's done, you don't have to go to court. So he decides that's, that's what he's going to do. So he makes this decision, right? I'm sure he's tortured soul, he struggled over this. He makes this decision, he goes to sleep that night, and that night he's got a dream. He has a dream, and in the dream, an angel shows up. Now, I need to do a little sidebar on angels here. Because if you're familiar with the Christmas story, you know that angels are showing up everywhere, right? It's like they're a dime a dozen. Seriously, serious, it's like, you know, Mary gets an angel, Joseph gets an angel, shepherds get an angel, uh, you know, Zechariah gets an angel for John the Baptist, angels, you kind of get the feeling like they're really active back then. Kind of been on strike ever since, but really active, you know, back then. Angels everywhere. And, and so you can kind of have, and this is like an example of real Christmas. What's it really like? I can pretty much guarantee you that angels were no more common then than now. The last thing that Joseph expected when he went to sleep was to see an angel. I mean, he, he heard about angels. He would read about angels in his Bible. That was back in the olden days. You know, so, sometimes we forget when we read the Bible, 
that the Bible is a spiritual highlight reel. It's covering thousands and thousands of years. The very best story. It's kind of, guys, it's like watching Sports Center. You see the best plays of the day. Right? It's like, like the Bible. It's like a spiritual sports center. And, and so when we read back, I mean, this is a, this is a critical time in human history. And, and angels are going to be a part of that, but it's not normal. And so when the angel shows up, Joseph is like no more expecting than you or I would be. And so let's see what happens. So verse 19, verse 18, this is how the, the birth of Jesus comes about. It's Mother Mary. She's pledged to be married just during that first year. But before they come together, notice before they have sex, before they're married, they're not living together. She's found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. So catch this. This is a, this is a supernatural act. This is a once-in-a-world history event. That, that this is... Uh, that God is going to supernaturally cause Mary to be pregnant, the DNA to be formed, the whole thing. Uh, it's a supernatural event. Never happened before, never, never happened since. Uh, I love the way Luke describes this. In Luke's gospel, he says that the Spirit of God overshadowed Mary. It's a picture like creation in Genesis 1 when the Spirit of God was hovering over the world before creation. And so, so God hovers over and causes her to become pregnant. And so she's found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. So Joseph, her husband, he's a righteous man. Catch that. He's a man who loves God. He's a man who honors Torah. He wants to do the right thing. And so he wrestles through this. And he says, but on the other side, he's a man who loves people. He's, he's a compassionate man. He says he didn't want to expose her to public disgrace in spite of what she had done to him. Remember, at this point, no angels shown up. He, doesn't, he just thinks she's either lying or doesn't know the story. He thinks she's just been unfaithful with one of his buddies grew up with in Nazareth that even sleeping behind the shack somewhere. So that's what he thinks. He thinks she's, that he's ruined life. That's what he thinks. And yet, his heart goes out, and he says he doesn't want to expose her to public disgrace. He knows life's going to get miserable for her soon. He wants to restore, doesn't want to, to, to judge her. And so he has in mind to divide, divorce her quietly. And in the Greek, it's clear he'd made up his mind. And so after he's considered this, an angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream. And he says, Joseph, son of whom? David. Now catch this, important. For Jesus to be the Messiah, he has to legally come from the line of David. Which means that he has to either be born from someone from the line or adopted from someone from the line. It's the only two ways to happen. He can't be born from you know, directly, because he's going to be born of God. God's his father. So he needs to be adopted by someone from the line of David. And so, so Joseph is the son of David. And, he, and so the angel says, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. And I want you to catch it. There's a lot to be afraid of here. The first thing to be afraid of as, as a God-fearing, a word-honoring man is, is I don't want to violate what the Word says. The Word says an adulteress is to be stoned. In our culture, we divorce her. I want to honor that, right? I want to do the right thing. It's the first thing he's afraid of. But on top of that, he's afraid of the lifetime of, ost uh, of being ostracized. Can, can you ostracize? Can you, can you imagine this? It's like we, we read this story and then we leave this story, but this story never leads them. Can you imagine Joseph and Mary joining a life group? Hey, you know, how long have you guys been married? Oh, that's awesome. How old's Jesus? 
well, a little older, um, like this is going to follow them the rest of their life. They, they live in a small town. And you grow up in a small town. Small towns have long memories, right? For the rest of his life, it's going to be, oh, there's Jesus. You know, he's either, you know, he's either, either they're sleeping together before they're married or, you know, something else even worse going on. Something's wrong here. Do you know that in the Gospel of John, most scholars believe in the Gospel of John, there are, there are points where some of the criticisms of the religious leaders are taking shots at Jesus' birth, his parentage. This is going to follow him. There's a, if, if Joseph marries this woman, it's going to look like either they were messing around before they got married, or she was messing or cheating on him. That's what it's going to look like. And that's what he's signing up for. And so the angel says, hey, don't be afraid. Because there's more to this story than meets the eye. And so, so here's what he says. He says, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. If she's told them the story, the angel's saying she's telling the truth. Uh, if she hasn't told them the story, he's saying, well, I'm, let me be the first to tell you. This is a supernatural child that's being born. He's the son of God. And uh, he says, you're to give him the name Jesus. And so Jesus, we'll talk about this later in the series, but Jesus means Yahweh is salvation. He's saving his people. He says, because he will save his people from their sins. So the nation of Israel is under foreign bondage. They have been for a long time. That life has never been the same since King David was on the throne. It's because of their sin, their rebellion. He says, this son, this son that's coming, uh, he is going to save his people from their sins. And, ca and catch that. Catch this. He says, uh, he says because uh, the, next in the, the next verse it says, she will give birth to a son. Now, again, we forget this. This was a day and age before ultrasound, right? So, so she's pregnant. She doesn't know what she's having. He doesn't know what she's having. This is new information. It's not like today. It's like, hey, can we twist that a little bit? Oh, uh, yeah. Okay, it's a boy. Uh, it's not like that. And so, so he says, this kid, he's a supernatural kid. He's going to rescue not only the nation but the world from their sin in some way that you don't understand. And, and, and so... Uh, he, he's going to be a boy. And then he goes on, and, he, and uh, Matthew does a little sidebar here, and he says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, and he quotes from Isaiah 7. We'll look at this, this passage in detail when we get to the third week of the series, Christmas weekend. But uh, it says, the virgin will be with child, and she'll give birth to a son, and they will call him what? Emmanuel, which means what? God would so catch this. Joseph doesn't know everything, but here's what he knows. A son's going to be born, supernatural kid. He's going to rescue the world from sins. And God, in some way, is breaking into time and space with this son. All right? So that's what he knows. And so, so right away, what, I love what happens next. It says, when Joseph woke up, catch this, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. I want you to miss that. Like, right away. A lot of questions, doesn't understand the whole story. He doesn't know about Jesus, about dying for sin. He doesn't know any of that. He, he just knows what he's been told. And, and so he says, all right. He knows it's going to be hard. It's a tough assignment. But right away, he doesn't hesitate, doesn't procrastinate, doesn't rationalize. He just, all right. He's quick to obey. 
And it says, then, but he, so he takes Mary home as his wife right away, but he has no union with her. They don't sleep together uh, until she gives birth to his son. Like, he wants to be really clear, this kid's not his. He doesn't want to mess with this plan of God. He doesn't want anyone saying, yeah, well, maybe he was just born early, you know? Like, he, he wants to be clear, but what I, I want you to see, this righteous man, part of being a righteous man is, is having our sexuality under control. And so, so here, here is this man who is, uh, loves God, pursues God, and even after he's married, it's wedding night, I'm sure he's looking forward to being with his wife, but he says, you know what, this is more important, you need to protect this, and so he's going to live a life of self-control, not sleep with his wife, until after Jesus is born. Now, some of you come from backgrounds that's taught that, that, that Mary was a perpetual virgin, but uh, there's nothing in the Bible that would suggest that. In fact, the opposite would be the case. Because when you get to Mark chapter 6, we find out that Jesus was the oldest in a family of at least seven kids. And so it would appear that after, you know, after Jesus is born, they go on then to have a normal kind of sexual marriage, marriage relationship. All right. So then he says that he gave him the name Jesus. And this is important because in Jewish culture, it was the job of the father to name his son on the eighth day when he's circumcised. And so, so when he's doing this, Joseph is now adopting Jesus as his legal son. And so now Jesus is legally from the line of David, which is part of what Matthew is building a case that Jesus fulfills the requirements to be the Messiah of Israel. All right, so that's, that's the passage. Now, in the time that we have today, what I want to do is a couple things. Uh, first, I want to start off by kind of laying out three big picture principles about who Jesus is, what God's doing uh, in this rescue mission, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and come back at the end and ask kind of three pointed questions for us about kind of what does it look like to follow Jesus based on this story, on this event. So there in your note sheet, there's a section called Real Christmas, uh, the stories of salvation. And this is what we're going to be doing uh, every week is saying, hey, these are amazing Christmas stories, but more than that, they're bigger than that. They're stories of salvation. And so what are they telling us about our relationship with God, who God is, who we are, what does it look like to follow? So let's jump in. The first principle that jumps out to me from this event is that the story, and this is kind of the obvious one, but I just want to put neon lights around it, this story is scandalous. It's so interesting to me, you know, we get so used to Christmas, and this is what I mean by real Christmas, we get so used to Christmas, we miss the obvious. I mean, Christmas, manger scenes, virgin, donkeys mangers, um, you know, angels, whatever, wise men, give. we think of this, we miss the obvious, that this is story is a story of scandal, uh, that when God decides to rescue the race, he does it in such a way that on the surface appears completely scandalous. There's gonna, it's, the story starts with what appears to be an illegitimate pregnancy, I, that, that's how the story starts. And what's so interesting to me as I've reflected on this is that when you stop and think about this, the story of Jesus is kind of scandalous from beginning to end. And we forget this because we're so far removed, we, we forget what it was like to be there. But I mean, the story starts with a scandal, right? That this, this woman who's not married is, is suddenly pregnant, which just looks scandalous, right, on, on the outside. Like, no one else knows this story. People are not going to all know this story. And so, but you stop and think about it, the story of Jesus is scandalous all the way through. 
Like when he grows up, we've seen this in the Gospel of Mark, he's always breaking the rules. He's, it's a scandal wherever he's going. He's always saying and doing things only God can do. Like he's going around claiming to forgive sins. Right? Like only God can do that. Everyone's like scandalized over this. Uh, he's saying things like, hey, I and the Father, we're basically the same. We're one. He's saying things like, oh yeah, Abraham, well before he was born, I am uh, oh, if you want to get to God, I'm actually the only way. Right? They, he's just saying like crazy things. We, we forget it. It's like there's like, wow. But the most crazy thing of all, the biggest scandal of all is how he dies. And again, we, we forget this, but you know, in ancient Israel, we've been talking about this in the Gospel of Mark. Messiahs win. Messiahs don't lose. Messiahs aren't arrested, beaten, and executed. That's not what happens. And if they're executed, they're not executed on a Roman cross, which is the greatest humiliation of the ancient world. We've talked about this, but the, the cross was so, uh, so shameful, it was considered not appropriate to discuss it in like dinner conversations, prop, appropriate, uh, proper conversations. It, it was something that, it, it doesn't even matter if you, whatever your crime is, you could kill Caesar, assassinate Caesar. If you're a Roman citizen, you're not allowed to be crucified. It's only, for, it's only for criminals. It's only for rebels. It's only for slaves. And so when the message of Jesus breaks out into the ancient world, that this person who's born of a virgin uh, lives his life and is arrested and crucified on a Roman cross, he's actually God uh, breaking into time and space to rescue us by that death. The whole thing seemed ludicrous. To Jews, it seemed like an oxymoron a crucified Messiah. It's, it was a stumbling block. They couldn't get over it. To Greeks and Gentiles, it looked as ridiculous. In Greek philosophy, your goal was to escape your physical body. Your physical body was seen to be the source of all our problems. So when you die, you, kind of, you, you might be sort of uh, go on living, but you get rid of the body. That's the goal. The concept that a God, the, the God creator, would enter into creation and become, take on a human body and then live and be crucified on a Roman cross, and then be resurrected and get another physical body who will live in for the, forever, the prototype of the new creation. This was ludicrous. It was scandalous. We forget. You know, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 talks about this. It's there, there in your note sheet. He, he tell, you know, he's, he's sharing Christ there in Corinth, this kind of pagan area in Greece. And he says, we preach Christ crucified. That's our message. You know, the, remember, Christ means Messiah. We preach Messiah crucified. And he says, that's a stumbling block to Jews. They can't get over it. It's foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has what? Called. Catch that. Those who God has called, those who God has chosen, open their eyes to see the truth. The story behind the story. It wasn't an illegitimate birth. It was a supernatural birth. That the death wasn't by accident. It was on purpose. And it's through this that Jesus came to save us from our sins, like was prophesied. He says, the resurrection is the first step of the recreation of the whole cosmos. To those who are called, to those who have eyes to see, that God opens their eyes. He says, Christ becomes the power of God. God breaking into human history. And he says, it becomes the wisdom of God. Once your eyes are open, it becomes the most brilliant 
plan to come incognito and rescue the race. What's interesting, this word here where it says to Jews, it's a stumbling block. Guess what the word in Greek is for stumbling block? The word is skandalon, which is where we get our word scandal. You see, the story of Jesus from beginning to end is a scandal. But to those who are called, it's the power of God. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. This amazing story that there was a time and a place when the God who created all time and space entered into his creation, became a part of the human race to rescue us. Story of Christmas. Now, number two, the second big picture principle that jumps out, and I love this, is that God calls ordinary people. I love this. You know, even in Christian circles, I know we often struggle with this. We talk about this from time to time at Rocky Peak, but, but I like to call it a two-tier mentality. That, that often, even as Christ followers, we have a two-tier uh, paradigm of spirituality. That we tend to look at life like this. There's certain people that are special people. There's certain people that God speaks to. There's certain people that God wants to draw close to. There's certain people that God reveals himself to. There's certain people that God uses. There are people like pastors. They're people like priests. They're people like nuns. They're people like popes. They're people that are just kind of special people, right? There's special people, and then there's the rest of us. And we're the normal people. And our job is just to come and listen to the special people. We listen to the special people, we come and we pay our money and we, you know, we serve here or there or whatever, and we're just kind of you got two kinds of people. And even as Christ followers, we still struggle with this mentality. And what you see throughout the Bible is exactly the opposite. It's more the rare thing that God chooses the educated, the wise, people from the right side of the tracks, the wealthy. That's more the rare thing. Who God chooses when he wants to draw close, who God chooses is the humble. God chooses the poor. God chooses the normal. God chooses the average. And you see it all through the Bible. He chooses a man like Abraham. He chooses a man like Moses, who's an 80-year-old failure on the backside of the Arabian desert, a flame out. He chooses uh, a man like Gideon, the least of his tribe. He chooses uh, the runt of the litter like David. You know, eighth kid, eighth boy. You know, lowest bunk. Sleep outside. Where is he? Out with the sheep. We didn't bring him in. He's not even important enough. Uh, <laughs> And what I love about this story is, and you stop and think how profound this is, that when God is choosing a man to raise his son, he chooses a poor, blue-collar construction guy that's just starting out in life. Isn't that awesome? And you know what? Joseph is going to be, go on to, he is going to be the father, the stepfather of Jesus. It's going to be Joseph that models for his son what it is to follow God. It's going to be Joseph that takes him to synagogue every week. It's going to be Joseph that talks Torah with him. It's going to be Joseph who welcomes in queen, the Queen's Sabbath every Friday night. And the family is going to do Sabbath together as they, they worship and they come before God. This is the man that God chose to raise his son. He was an ordinary guy. 
And what this says to us is that God is not looking for special people. He's looking for normal people. And you know, when Jesus grew up, stop and think when he started his movement, he did not choose one rabbi, one wealthy person, one highly educated. Think of who, who did he choose? He chose four commercial fishermen, fresh off a shoot with the Discovery Channel, right? He got James and John, loudmouth Peter, his brother Andrew, they fought through their lives, and now he says, hey, you're my guys. He chooses a moral reprobate, a reject, a Matthew, he's a tax collector, a guy who sold his soul, a guy with a past. He says, I want you to be one of my." He chooses a freedom fighter uh, named, uh, kind of a terrorist guy named Simon, the zealot. He chooses a couple skeptics like Thomas and Nathaniel. He says, perfect. Perfect. You guys don't have a lot going. Perfect. When God wants to do something special, he looks for everyday people. Number three. Oh, before you go on, let's, look, let's pick up that verse there in 1 Corinthians. This is the same passage we just looked at in 1 Corinthians 1 about stumbling block. But, but it's not just true of Jesus. It's true of the early movement of Jesus. It says, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. When you, when you came to Christ, that's the word called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. You weren't all brilliant. Not many were influential. There were some. He says there were some, some influential people, but they were more the minority. They're, they're not, not many were of noble birth. There were some, but not many. It's always been the way God works, just looking for every, everyday people. Number three, the third principle is that Joseph is a model to follow. We talk here at Rocky Peak about being a passionate Christ follower. Uh, Joseph would qualify. Joseph was a man who loves God, and he loves people. We, we saw it today in, in chapter 1 and verse 19. Let's pick it up again. Why don't you grab your Bibles again? Go to chapter 1 and verse 19. I want to point this out to you. This is because Joseph, her husband, was a what? A righteous man. Now, in context, Jewish culture... A righteous man is a man who observes Torah, observes the law. Think of Psalm 119, I love your law, O Lord. He's this kind of guy. He's Joseph, he loves Torah. He, when he hits a crisis in his life, first place he's going to go, he's going to go to the Word of God. God, what do you want me to do? He's going to pray about this. Major crisis. He, he's, he's a man who seeks God. His number one concern is what's the right thing to do. Man, let me speak to you just for a minute. Just a quick sidebar. Never miss, never underestimate the power of a righteous man. Some of you guys, uh, you're married. Some of you guys have families. Can I tell you something? It's one of the highest callings in life to be a husband and a father who's a righteous man. The power of a righteous man. The heart, we, we often talk about spiritual leadership. What does it mean to be a spiritual leader of your family? Can I tell you what it means to me? What it, to me, to be a spiritual leader, you show me the person who cares most about doing the right thing. I'll show you the spiritual leader. Who, who's the person in your family who says, I want to find out what God wants us to do, and, and I'm committed to that, come hell or high water. 
That's a righteous man. And when a woman is married to a man like that, the heart of a wife can trust in her husband because she trusts in his intentions. The children of a man like that, in Proverbs it says, the righteous man his children find refuge. There's a safety there. Guys, one of our highest callings in life is just to be God's man. To be a man who pursues God and leads our families well. Joseph was that kind of a man. He was that kind of a man. And, and, and then, so he's not only a man of Torah, a man who asks the right questions, a man who pursues God, but he's a man that when, when the angel says, this is what you need to do, not plan A, plan B, man, he's quick to obey. And we've talked about what a price he's going to pay for this, the, 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 uh, being ostracized. And all these, it's a price. And yet right away, he obeys. He doesn't, he doesn't debate it. He doesn't procrastinate. He doesn't hesitate. He obeys. He's a man who loves God. But also, he's a man who loves people. We've talked about this a lot. After all Mary had put him through, from his point of view, remember at this point he doesn't know the story, from his point of view, she had slept around on him. She had, you know, violated, they're, they're engaged. She slept with someone who's engaged. She brought shame on her family, shame on him. Life will never be the same. world is ruined, and yet, we see this compassion that this man has for her. You know, when Jesus grows up, Jesus is going to show us what it means. He's going to say the most important thing in life, love God, love people. He's going to model this. Last week, we saw a great example. When Dre was teaching in John chapter 8, a woman caught in adultery, right? The religious leaders want to condemn her. Remember, Jesus wants to restore her. Jesus was a man of compassion, did not come to condemn, came to restore. And, and Joseph models that beautifully. A man who's passionate about pleasing God, a man who, who loves people. You know, this is the irony. Often people in Christian circles, and not just Christian circles, but often people in Christian circles who claim to love God the most and love his word the most, they're often the harshest of all people. They're often self-righteous, look down the nose, and it's nothing to do with Jesus. Jesus is exactly the opposite, and Joseph is a man who models, love God, love people. And so the question then, how does that fit with our lives? And there in your note sheet, there's a section that's called Real Christmas, the Joseph Model. And as we Bring this to a close. I want to wrap up with just three simple questions, kind of quick questions. To like, let's take it home. Let's apply it to our life. We've seen the model. Now, now how do we follow his model? Number one, the first question I would ask, uh, and this is for both non-believers and for believers here, but I want to ask it in different ways. Let me give you the question, and then we'll break it down. The first question is, uh, are you embracing the scandal? And so let me talk to those of you here who are just checking out Jesus. You're not yet a follower of Jesus. Maybe someone's invited you. Uh, but the, in all reality, this may be the first time you've really heard the real story of Christmas. Uh, prior to today, you, you may have heard the story of angels, Mary, virgin, manger, all that. You've seen the little crashes. You kind of get the, but you, you, you kind of know the outline, but you've not really known the story. The story that that what Christmas is about is there is a time and there's a place 
when the God who created all time and space entered into creation, His creation, entered and became part of the human race to rescue us through His life, His birth, His life, His death, His resurrection. Maybe the first time you've heard that story. And what I want you to catch is this is the invitation. This is an invitation from Jesus to you. It's His way of saying, I love you. I've come to rescue you. I don't care what you've done or where you've been or what you've done wrong. I've come to rescue you from your sins. I've come to live for you. If you'll give your life to me, you trust in me. You'll be born again, new life. I will become for you the power of God. And so, but you have to embrace the scandal. You have to embrace the story of the scandal. Let me talk to those who are believers now. We're, we're Christ followers. What I want you to catch is that the story of Jesus has always been scandalous. And as a result, there's always been a price to pay for following Jesus. Always. It's, it was like this from the beginning. There was a price for Joseph to embrace the scandal. There was a price for the early church to embrace the cross, the message of the cross. Paul says to to most people, the message of the cross is a stumbling block or it's ridiculous. It's always been that way. And so what we have to understand as followers of Jesus, and especially as we enter into this Christmas season, where there's a lot about Jesus, there's a lot of a story and all, that as, if we're going to followers, be followers of Jesus, we have to be willing to embrace the scandal that comes with Jesus. It's always been a scandal. There's going to be people in your life that say, if you're a follower of Jesus, they're going to see you, you are completely a stumbling block to them, or you are completely ridiculous. I don't see how anyone could believe. But here's what I want you to catch. I want you to ask yourself the question, what would have happened to us today if Joseph had not embraced the scandal? What would have happened if he said, no, what, this is going to be, this is going to look bad. This is, no, no, I don't, I don't want to be part of this story. Get someone else. You know, get a son of Reuben. I don't want to be this. Like, we wouldn't be here, right? He embraced the scandal. He didn't understand the whole story, but he understood that God was calling him to be something, part of something powerful. And because of that, the story of Jesus went forward, and we're here today. And here's what I want you to catch. As you're out there, you're at family gatherings, you're with workplace, you're with people that, that some who love Jesus, some who hate Jesus, some who think it's ridiculous, the temptation is to stick our head in the sand, pretend we're not who we are. But what I want you to catch is, yes, there are those who will think you're foolish. Yes, there are those who will, it's a stumbling block, but there will also be those who through you, Christ becomes the power of God. And that's who we need to be. We need to be a church that embraces the scandal. We need to be, yes, we're followers of Jesus. Yes, we believe the story of his birth. We believe the story of his death. We believe the story of his resurrection. And here's what we can tell you. If you will believe it, it's the power of God in your life. It'll set you free. We need to be Christ followers who embrace the scandal. Never shirk the scandal. Right? Number two, the second question is are you ready to be used? And so we've seen today that even in Christian circles, we often struggle with this, this two 
tier paradigm of spirituality. There's the special people, and then there are the regular people. God uses the special people. God speaks through special people. He's close with special people. He uses special people, but the rest of us, we just kind of come and sit, and we just kind of, you know, we just kind of are there to be the audience for the special people. But I hope that paradigm is being challenged today. Joseph was a regular guy, but because he had a heart for God, God drew close, and God chose him to be the father of his son, to raise his son for him, and he chose him to be part of an amazing story, and here's what I just want to challenge you today. I, I want to ask you, do you need to change your paradigm? Do you need to change your paradigm? Do you have a two-tier paradigm? Do you find yourself thinking at time and being afraid, God doesn't love me, he won't be close to me, I'm not special, I've done too much after all the things I've done, after all the failures, or I came from the wrong side of the track, or I'm not educated, or I'm not a Bible scholar, or whatever the thing is, do you need to challenge that paradigm? And do you need to recognize once and for all, this is a paradigm from the pit of hell. The reality is, if you want in, you're in. If you want to know Jesus, if you want to hear his voice, if you want to be used by him, if you want to walk with God, the door is open. And Joseph shows us the way. Number three, the third question is, are you quick to obey? In some ways, this is the most important question. You know, uh, one of the things I love about Joseph was when he got his assignment, he was quick to obey. I mean, first of all, he, he's a man of Torah. He's a man of the law. He's going to go to the Word. He's going to say, God, here's a situation. What do you, he's going to go to the Word. I love that about him. And when God shows him what to do, whether it's through the Word or through an angel, doesn't matter. He's quick to obey. And so that very next day, even though the assignment was hard, even though he didn't understand how it was all going to work out, he went and took Mary to be his wife next day. I love that. You know, so many times in our life, we can be slow to obey. So many times in our life, uh, we kind of wait, want to wait till all of our questions are answered. So many times in our life, I, I, once I can visualize how this is going to work out. And so, so God asks you to break off a relationship. You're dating a guy, you're dating a girl, it's not the right thing. And, and God asks you, and you're like, yeah, but I, I, you know, who will you bring if I break up? Like, what if this is the best person I'm going to get? I hate to settle, but maybe it's better than nothing, you know? And so, so God, could you just tell me what's going to happen next? God challenges some of you financially as generosity is kingdom. And you're like, yeah, but what are we gonna, how are we going to pay the bills? Or, or what about retirement? Or what about this? And how's that all going to work out? We want to know the end of the story from the beginning. Someone's here, God's calling you to a new ministry. You don't know what the heck you're doing, but God's calling you to it. You're like, you're afraid to step out. I'm not a leader. I don't know what to do. Could you show me how this is going to work, God? It's like, No. I want you to trust me. I want you to, I want you to step out. You know, th this was a pattern for Joseph. We saw it here, but I love next week we'll see this, this next event that happens where, you know, it's a year or two later. Uh, Jesus is now a toddler. He's in diapers. 
Joseph's working extra hours to pay for the diapers. In the middle of the night, you know, he's got his job. They're living in Bethlehem. They decide to relocate there. Middle of the night, things are going well. He has a second dream. Down on a first name basis with the angel. And the angel says, hey, you're in trouble. You're in danger. Herod, and everyone who knows who Herod is, just like he's a bad, brutal guy. We'll talk about him next week. But he said, Herod, he's after your kid. You need to go. You need to run for your life. And catch this, in the middle of the night, we're told, Joseph gets up in the middle of the night, they pack up, and they leave for Egypt. Probably to go down and live with a Jewish population, large Jewish population in Alexandria. Probably that's where he's headed. He packs up in the middle of the night. God says, go. He, in the middle, he's so quick to obey. Now, now, I want you to think about it. What would have happened if Joseph said, Wow, that's really weird. I think I'll just sleep on it. Let me ask you a question. How many times have you missed the next chapter God wants to write in your life because you've slept on it? See, anything less than quick obedience is disobedience. And Joseph is a model. And and what what stories does God want to write in your life this next year as we head towards a new year? What are the stories God wants to write in your life that are going to be dependent on quick obedience? See, so many times we want to wait, figure it out, let me think, hesitate, procrastinate, and rationalize while the world is going by. Life is going by. He told you now for a reason. If he didn't need you to obey for a month, he would have waited a month. And so Joseph becomes this model of this amazing guy, righteous guy, normal guy, everyday guy, who's willing to embrace the scandal. And quick to obey. And because of that, we're here today. What are the stories that God wants to write in your life this year? Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful for Joseph. And I just look forward to meeting him someday, hearing more of his story. And what it was like to raise your son. Thank you for this amazing man that This is love for you, is love for people. Kind of models for us what it looks like to be a passionate Christ follower. We just pray, Lord, that uh, you would help us to be a people that kind of move out of this old paradigm that's only special people. And we just, we run hard in our relationship knowing that you're inviting us and that you want to use us and we'd be quick to obey when we understand, when we don't understand, when it's hard, when it's easy, that you can write the stories of Christ in our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Father, we pray as we go into this time now of worship, we pray that you would teach us how to follow. We pray you'd use us, use these gifts that we bring as sacrifices of our obedience to create a place, a church, a movement that's quick quick to follow. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.
it will be my joy to say, your will, your way. I think that could have been Joseph's song, right? That was his song, Lord, uh, lay me down, lay me down. Whatever you need, I'm here to go, quick to obey. Uh, you let me know what you need. And uh, that, w- that would be a model for our lives. And as we enter this Christmas season, uh, maybe a time where we are like Joseph. We are we're people that, just kind of regular average people, but we're open to God. We're being used by God, and uh, we're quick to obey. This, uh, as we end our, our service today, we always have at the, at the end a ministry at the back called the Prayer Corner back here to my left. And so if you need prayer about anything, there's some tables back there. Some people would love to pray about you, with you, for about whatever you, you need prayer for. Uh, next week, we're going to continue the journey. We're, we're on, unpacking another very famous story, but I think often just kind of totally missed. It's the story of the Magi, these men who came seeking. And what does it look like to be a person who really seeks God and finds? And so I hope you can uh, be with us next week as we continue. Until then, uh, may the spirit of Joseph be with you. May May you be a man or a woman who is quick to believe that God loves you and has a plan for your life and wants to use you, speak to you, uh, move through you, and that you would be a person who is quick to obey so that the chapters, the stories that God wants to write of your future would not be missed, that we would not look back and say what would have happened. We would look forward and say, I'm excited about the future and the stories that are coming uh, as I follow him. Amen? Amen. God bless you guys. See you next weekend.